You know, folks, there are two questions that every pastor, if he'll be honest, that every pastor struggles with and wrestles with in his ministry. And I promise you, whether you want to admit it or not, you wrestle with these same two questions. They're simple questions. The first one is this, uh, why does God? The second one is this, why doesn't God? Now, have you ever watched uh, the news or read the news of a, of a man-made or natural disaster? Or maybe you have had a tragedy occur in your own life, your own family, and you can't help ask, but why? God, why did a six-year-old child have to die in a car wreck, but the 36-year-old drunk that caused it didn't have a scratch? God, why did a fine Christian man have to suffer and go through the pain and the suffering and die of cancer? God, why do Christian believers, those who believe in you, like those in Egypt or Sudan or northern Kenya or Somalia, why were they tortured, beaten, abused, and then beheaded for the faith? God, why did you not just stop all that? Why did you not stop the tsunami or the earthquake or the virus that has taken thousands of lives? Now, folks, I'm going to be real candid with you. In my life at times, I've had those moments. Those shake your fist in the face of God moments. And you say, why? I'm going to tell you something. All over this world tonight, people are going to lay down and try to go to sleep, and they're going to lay their head on a tear-stained pillow, and in their heart they're shaking their fist at God, and they're asking those two questions, God, why did you? Or God, why didn't you? Now I want to tell you, if you've ever felt like shaking your fist in the face of God, and you've maybe gone ahead and done that, then I want you to understand you're not the first person to do that, and you will not be the last person to do that. You realize there is an entire book in the Bible built around a man who did that very thing. And it's the book we're going to be looking at for the next three weeks, today and two weeks after this. You say, what about 1 John? We'll get back to 1 John, but God impressed upon me that we need to cover this right now. We need to look at this book right now. Now, it's a book that I actually went over about five and a half years ago. Uh, it is my favorite book in the Minor Prophets of the Old Testament. It's a book that is short, but it's a book that is very powerful and I believe is very relevant to where God's people are concerning the times that we're living in today. The book I'm talking about is the book of Habakkuk. So you can take your Bibles and find the book of Habakkuk. You say, I may have to look at the front of the, of the book to find it. That's okay. Let me give you a quick, um, you know, easy way to find it. If you go to Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament, and then go back four books, you'll find the book of Habakkuk. Again, Habakkuk's one of the books called a minor prophet, but there's nothing minor about the message that's given. And you know, the only time that he has ever mentioned in the entire Bible is in this book that bears his name. And even his name clues us in a little bit to what the book is about. The name Habakkuk, it literally means to embrace, to wrestle, or to struggle with. So today, we're going to talk about wrestling with God. The Hebrew word picture that's given for the name Habakkuk is a picture of a wrestler in a match with an opponent. The Hebrew uh, word is more than just a wrestler with an opponent. It talks about a wrestler who is struggling, who has given it all he has. 
That's exactly what Habakkuk's doing in this book. He's wrestling with his faith in God, and he's wrestling with the God of his faith. And what makes this particular uh, prophetical book unique as compared to all the other prophetical books is because most of the other prophetical books in the Bible, they're either one long sermon, or they're either several short sermons brought together, or it's a letter, or it is uh, just a series of repeated warnings against a rebellious nation, against the nation of Israel. This book really is, uh, Habakkuk is a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. It's kind of a, a, a journal, a prayer journal for Habakkuk. And what we have are three prayers that he prayed and the answers that God gave him. Now, the book of Habakkuk, really, it's about being on the ropes. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Well, he's on the ropes. Well, you know what that means, a boxer or a wrestler. If he's on the ropes, it means they're in big trouble. Their strength is given up. It's waning. They're about to lose the match. So I want you to listen close to me. If you have ever or right now, maybe you are struggling with your faith or you're struggling with God, you're having a hard time believing that God cares, that God even listens, that God's involved in what's going on in your life and the world around you, or you're struggling with the fact that God is even good. And I want to tell you, the book of Habakkuk and the next three weeks, Sunday mornings, they're for you. Friend, if you have ever been mad, or maybe you are mad at God right now, because of something you believe either God did or God did not do, then the book of Habakkuk and these three messages are to you. If you walked in here today with your fist shaking in the face of God, you said, God, I am mad and I just can't take it anymore. If the fire of your faith is slowly but surely being extinguished by the water of doubt, then I got good news for you. This book and these messages are for you. Now Habakkuk's wrestling with basically one question. It's a question that I'm sure caused him sleepless nights, loss of appetite, maybe, maybe uh, you know, unbelievable depression uh, or discouragement because what's going on, Habakkuk is looking at the world around him and he's looking at his country and they are collapsing before his very eyes. Now I'm going to tell you, it's, it's a lot like, it's unbelievably like the world and the country that we're living in right now. It seems like everything that's not nailed down is coming up. It seems like the bad guys win a lot more, more often than the good guys do. I mean, it seems like the naughty and the nasty, they always get away with victory, and the good and the godly are defeated. What, what Habakkuk is doing is wrestling with this question. If God is good and God is in control, then why is the world the way it is? I'm going to tell you, Habakkuk is literally drying up in a desert of death. Can anybody here relate to that? If you've ever been at that point, or again, maybe there now or one day you will find yourself there, there's something that Habakkuk encourages us to remember, and it's this. And I want you to write it in the margin of your Bible somewhere. It is not a sin to doubt. It's not a sin to doubt. I have heard people preach that for years. That's just not true. And we're going to see that taught right here. We're going to learn from Habakkuk that if you deal with doubt, if you deal with that crisis of belief in the proper way, your faith is going to come out stronger when it's over with. I want you to listen to these words that a preacher wrote. He said, if faith never encounters doubt, if truth never struggles with error, if good never battles with evil, how can faith know its own power? In my own pilgrimage, I have to choose between a faith that has stared doubt in the eye and made it blink, or a naive faith that has never known the firing line of doubt. 
I will choose the former every time. And I agree with that. So will I. Now, I got a spoil alert for you. I hate to tell you the end of the story, but you probably already got it figured out anyway. In the end, Habakkuk's faith, it stares doubt right in the eye, and his faith wins. But I want to warn you, the battle is difficult. The struggle is hard. The victory is painful. So as we start this incredible journey with a great man who encountered a great question and won a great struggle 2,500 years ago, there's something that I want you to learn. I want you to write this in the margin of your Bible as well. And I've told you this before. But it bears repeating. When you don't understand what God is doing, you need to remember who God is. When you don't know what God is doing, remember who God is. Now, there's a lot we can learn from the first two verses, from the first words of the book of Habakkuk. Learn about how to deal with doubt, how to handle those uh, shaking your fist in the face of God moments. And there's two things that Habakkuk does, both of them, you and I need to do if we're going to defeat doubt and strengthen our faith. And the first one is honestly confront God. Look at verses 1 and 2. And I'm reading out of the ESV this morning. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Verse 2. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Now let me give you a quick uh, historical background of the time when Habakkuk was written. Now no doubt the two greatest kings in the history of Israel were King David and his son, King Solomon. Under their reign, uh, Israel became the world's power. There was a period of time in Israel's history where everything was right, where Israel was totally right with God, and they were literally an invincible nation. But as it happened so many times, sin entered into the picture. And decay and decline set in when Solomon sinned, when his heart began to turn away from God. He disobeyed God. He intermarried with pagan women. He set up pagan shrines. Israel soon fell into idolatry. After Solomon died, there was a civil war that broke out for control of the country. And the country broke into two. One to the north, that was Israel. And the country to the south, that was Judah. Now eventually... Eventually, because of Israel's continued rebellion, they were taken captive by the Assyrians. Only Judah was left. Now, for a time, God spared the nation of Judah. Even under a good king named Josiah, God brought revival. He brought reformation to a nation who long ago had turned their back on him. But revival did not last. Judah once again turned to paganism, turned to idolatry. They disregarded God's word and disobeyed God's law. And Habakkuk, he had been praying for God to do something with his country. Praying uh, years, praying a long time, but instead... Of prayer becoming a solution, prayer becomes a problem with him. Look at verse 2. Again, the rest of verse 2, he says, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Habakkuk's prayer journal, is it doesn't start in the beginning because he says, How long shall I cry for help? Apparently he'd been praying for a long time. He'd been praying for his country. He'd been calling out to God day after day, uh, week after week, month after month, year after year. His frustration finally hit a boiling point. His frustration finally hit the terminal level. And to put it mildly, he gets downright blunt with God. In fact, this is what makes Habakkuk different, folks, from all the other prophets in the Old Testament. Instead of confronting the people, this prophet Habakkuk, he's confronting God. His problem now is not so much the, his nation's iniquity, his problem is what he believes to be God's indifference. And if you'll notice here, it's almost insultingly, he basically says to God, I know you're not dead, but are you deaf? You're not listening to me. 
If you ever had that experience of praying about something and praying about something long and hard and praying about something that you believed was a no-brainer and God would hear and God would answer and you got no response, then you know exactly how Habakkuk feels at that moment. Maybe you prayed for someone in your family, a loved one, that God would spare and not take them home, but they died. Maybe you prayed that a marriage would not fail, but it did fail. You prayed for bad things to change to good things, but they got worse. You feel like uh, you've been to the point where you feel like you're dialing up God on your prayer phone only to hear these words, sorry, the number's being disconnected. Well, if you've ever been there, you know how Habakkuk felt. You see, it's not just... Uh, Habakkuk, it's not just what he believes is God's indifference that's ripping Habakkuk's heart out, but it's God's seemingly inaction that's causing the pain. Look again, verse 2, uh, the second part of verse 2 this time, on in verse 4. Or cry to you violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk's looking at a culture and a country that is literally again disintegrating before his very eyes. And it's breaking his heart. It's crushing his spirit. What Habakkuk is saying is, Lord, people are messed up. The culture's messed up. Families are messed up. Systems in society are messed up. Policemen aren't enforcing the law or they're not allowed to enforce the law. Attorneys, they're not out for justice. They're out for bucks. Judges, they don't care about justice. They care about power. Elected officials, all they care about is fleecing the people they're supposed to serve and to care about. All they want to do is line their pockets with ill-gotten gain. And, and right here, he says, if you don't do something about it, God, I don't know what we're going to do. Uh, Habakkuk says, it's, it's almost like, and, and you, you've said, I know we've all said this, the innocent's getting shafted and the guilty's getting away with everything. You know, in our side today, I hate to say this, but it seems like you do the right thing, you can get sued or thrown in jail. If you do the wrong thing, you're going to get away with it. That's what Habakkuk's facing. Now, I find it interesting. I want you to look at verse 2 and 3. He repeats the word violence twice. Now, would anybody deny we're living in an increasingly violent society, an increasingly violent nation and world? From abortion to euthanasia to abused and battered wives and children to school shootings to church shootings to suicide bombers to riots in the street to racism to genocide. All this violence... That's what was going on in Habakkuk's time. And yet we're supposed to believe in spite of all that, there's a God in heaven who is all good and all powerful. Well, it just did not add up for Habakkuk. And for many folks today, it doesn't add up. Habakkuk, though, I believe is pinpointed the single biggest problem I think everybody in this room has with God. You know what that is? When we know God can, but he doesn't. I mean, we know God can stop the violence. God can stop the injustice. God can stop the lawlessness. God can stop the oppression, but he doesn't. Now, folks, when faced with this kind of dilemma, generally, 
you're going to get advice, and, and it's going to be one of two things that people will say to you. On one hand, some people will say, well, whatever you do, do not question God. You'll offend God if you question God. Don't question God. You don't have the right to question God. Even if you do question God, keep it to yourself. And then other folks say this. They go to the other extreme. They say, well, just don't believe in God. Why would you believe in a God who can but won't? Why would you believe in a God who should but doesn't? Why would you believe in a God like that? We you know what Habakkuk says? He says, I'm going to do both. I'm going to question God, and I'm going to continue to believe in God. I want you to draw up close and listen to your pastor for a few minutes. When you hit the wall with God, and there's going to be those times in your life when you're going to hit that wall, when you're going to wrestle with your faith in God and wrestle with the God of your faith, and your faith is literally going to be on the ropes. When those times come, and they will come, you will do one of three things. I know from experience, and only one of those things is the right one. You see, when those times come, some people, you know what they do? They check out. I know people right now who are church members on our church row. They used to come to church faithfully. They used to serve faithfully. But they hit a rough spot in their life. They hit a tough spot, uh, financially speaking. Or they hit a rough spot in their marriage. The engine of their life's not hitting on all the cylinders. It's just, just kind of sputtering. And so what have they done? They completely dropped out of church. At the very time when they should have been more in church than any time of their life, they quit and they check out. Let me tell you what else. Some folks, instead of checking out, they just back out completely. They just walk away from God altogether. They say, I knew this God stuff wasn't going to work. I knew it wasn't for me. I knew it wasn't real. I knew it wasn't nothing but a bunch of religious superstition. And they say something like this. Because if God is who he says he is, why is this world in the shape it's in? You ever had anybody answer you like that? I want to tell you, both of those responses, they are futile and they are fatal. And if you take either one of those approaches, you will live in defeat and more than likely die in defeat. What we need to do is the third thing, and that's what Habakkuk does. He talks it out. He doesn't hit the panic button and say, well, evidently there's no hope. He doesn't, uh, uh, on the other hand, hit the snooze button and say, well, they're really in the problem. Habakkuk, he doesn't pretend with God and he doesn't pout with God. What does he do? He wrestles with God. He struggles with God. Let me ask you, friend, are you frustrated with God? Are you? Well, then tell him. Because I got news for you. He already knows that. I mean, are you questioning God? Do you have questions in your heart about what God is doing and why God is doing? Ask him. He already knows you've got those questions there. And I want to tell you something, friend. God can handle your questions, your frustrations, and your doubts. He's big enough to take care of that. That's Habakkuk's first prayer. Now we come to God's first answer. Now remember this. God always answers prayer. He doesn't always answer prayer in a way that we want to hear. And sometimes he answers prayer in a way we can't hear. Or he'll answer prayer in a way that we don't even understand or recognize. But he does always answer prayer. And God's answer to Habakkuk's prayer, it's not only astounding, it's shocking. Look at verses 5 to 11. The Lord's answer, he says, he tells Habakkuk, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe told. For behold, I am raising up now the Chaldeans, but it's the Babylonians, same thing, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. 
Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. The horsemen, their horsemen, press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep up like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Now in effect, what God just said to Habakkuk is, you think things are bad now? Son, you ain't seen nothing yet. God says, I've been in the process of answering your prayer for a long time, Habakkuk. I just haven't told you because there's two reasons. One, if I'd have told you, you wouldn't believe it. And secondly, if I'd have told you, you had no way to understand it. And then he says six words to Habakkuk that I think reminds us of the old adage, be careful what you pray for, you might get it. Look at, look at verse 6. He says, for behold, here are the six words. I am raising up the Babylonians. God says, Habakkuk, you've been praying for deliverance of your nation. Well, son, I'm going to deliver them. I'm going to deliver them right into the hands of their worst nightmare. I don't have time to unpack all these verses and, and unload them and explain what he's talking about when he describes the nation of Babylon. But let me just say this. The Babylonians of this time, they would have made North Korea, China, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, uh, Nazi Germany. They made all them look like Girl Scouts. Because to this day, folks, one of the most ruthless, bloodthirsty people in the history of the world were the Babylonians. You see, they did not just conquer nations, they crushed them. They summarily executed and put to death everybody in their way. They raped and abused the women of nations they invaded. They butchered children. These, this is all recorded in historical notes. They set fire to everything, houses, land, whatever it was. Their method of operation was very simple. Two words, devastate and destroy. Devastate and destroy. Now what made it all worse, look at verse 11. The last thing God says about them. He said, they're guilty men whose own might is their God. Their God was their power. Their God was their strength. Their God was their military might. What God was saying is, you've been praying that I would send revival to your nation? Well, I'm not going to send revival. I'm going to raise up a pagan, wicked, ruthless nation to wreak havoc and destroy your nation. Now, don't you think at this point in time that Habakkuk probably said, uh, said something like, well, God, I'm sorry I bothered you. You can go back to doing nothing. You know, God, just forget it. Forget that I brought this up. Just let it go, okay? Just forget the whole thing. Listen to me, if you're going to see, and I want you to pay attention to this, if you're going to get the most out of this book, you're going to need to see throughout this book that God's basic reply is a lesson that we need to learn, and it's a principle that we need to remember. When we're wrestling with God, we're struggling with that crisis of belief. Friend, you need to remember, don't you ever judge God by what you think you would do if you were God, because you're not God. Now Habakkuk's in a dilemma. He's reached a point of desperation in his time of crisis, crisis of belief. I can imagine Habakkuk thinks to himself, wait a minute. God, you're going to raise up a nation more wicked than my nation? A nation more horrible than my nation? A nation more sinful than my nation to destroy my nation? Now maybe some of you are sitting here today and you're thinking to yourself, I can relate to that. I asked God for one thing and he gave me the complete opposite. 
You know, I asked God for something good, and he, and he gave me something bad. I asked God for this, and instead He gave me that. So what do you do when you get to that point? When you're at that crisis of belief, and you have, you have honestly confronted God, what's the next step? Well, you do what Habakkuk did. After he honestly confronted God, he faithfully commended God. Habakkuk's at the crossroads, so let's see what he does. He was so frustrated. Now, maybe you've been here. He was so frustrated that God seemingly did not listen to his prayer and that God was not answering his request. Well, folks, now he's even more frustrated because God has listened to his prayer all along. God has answered that prayer, and now he believes God's given him the wrong answer. You see, instead of giving Habakkuk what he wanted for his country, God was given what the country needed, and Habakkuk did not like that answer. So what do you do at that point? Do you check out? Do you back out? Uh, even after you talk it out and you're still not satisfied. You know what you got to do? You got to do the same thing Habakkuk did. You go back to the basics. In essence, you go back to the beginning. Let me take it a step farther. You go back to the one who is the beginning of all beginnings. You've got to go back to God. You got to remind yourself when you're in that crisis of belief and you're wrestling with God in your faith, you've got to remind yourself who it is that you're wrestling with. Remind yourself who it is you're struggling with, who it is that you're upset with. And remember what I said, when you don't understand what God's doing, remember who God is. Well, who is God? Well, look at verse 12. Habakkuk says, are you not from everlasting? In other words, he said, you are the everlasting God. You are from everlasting. The first thing you have to remember about God is He is eternally wise. Friend, I don't care what situation you're facing or what's going on in the world. It does not change the fact. God is eternally wise. He was here before all this universe came into existence. He will be here when all this universe fades away. Now think about this. None of us were here when it all came into existence. And I would imagine that most of us, we're not going to be here when it goes out of existence. But God's going to see both. From eternity past to eternity present to eternity future, God has never made a mistake, and He never will make a mistake. Friend, no matter what problem you're facing, that's the first step. Put your problem in the proper perspective by putting your focus on God. He's eternally wise. Then He goes on to say again, verse 12, O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. In other words, we're not going to die, are we? We're not going to be wiped out from the face of the earth. In one word, though, this is what I want you to focus on. In one word, you read the number one attribute of God found in the Bible, and it's not love, it's not forgiveness, it's not mercy. You know what it is. I've preached on it. You've heard me preach on it many times. It's the fact that God is a holy God. Now, how holy is God? Well, look at verse 13. You are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Now don't misunderstand and misinterpret this verse. This doesn't mean that God does not see sin. We know that's not true. There's all kinds of verses in the Bible. God tells us God sees sin. God sees everything. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. What this means is, though God sees sin, he does not look on sin with approval. For instance, we can hear a dirty joke and we might laugh at it. God can't. We can see a dirty picture. We might stare at it. God will not. He is perfectly holy. So Habakkuk, as he's arguing with God, and he's basically he's asking God, uh, in effect, are you really sure that this is the right thing? 
Are you sure this is the right way to go? And you know what else he's doing when he's questioning God? He's asking God. He's also reminding himself that, well, it must be the right thing because God is perfectly holy. And for him to do anything wrong, he would not be holy. And if it was not holy, he would not be God. And God will never compromise or deny his holiness. I want you to look back at verse 12, the second part of verse 12. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. In other words, he is saying, God, you are sovereignly powerful. Now, you heard me preach on this the last couple of weeks, but I want to hit it again. God controls history. He controls destiny. He controls this world, everything, and everyone in this world. Now, although the Babylonians thought that by their own might and their own power, they had raised themselves up, that, that wasn't the truth. That wasn't the case. God raised them up. God raised them up for a specific purpose and a specific plan. Now it all begins to come together for Habakkuk. At least momentarily it comes together. You see, Habakkuk's in the same position that I believe some of you are right now. You're saying, I just don't understand what God's up to based on what I'm seeing. I cannot believe this is the way God is choosing to work in my life or in the world. Well, Habakkuk finally got it, and I think it's time that most of us get it as well. So let me share with you three things that Habakkuk got. If God is eternally wise, then he has a plan. God has a plan that will work, a plan that will work best, a plan that is right and won't fail. Secondly, if God is perfectly holy, then whatever the final outcome of any situation is, it's not going to be evil, it's going to be good. And if God is absolutely sovereignly powerful, then whatever is happening is not by chance. It's not by blind luck. God's in control. God knows what he's doing. And here's something more I want you to think about. Not only does God know what he's doing, but God knows why he's doing what he's doing. He's got a plan. So let me start wrapping it up for today. What have we learned so far in Habakkuk? Well, there are three lessons, and I want you to remember these. When you don't think God's listening, He is. When you don't think God has a plan, He does. When you think things are out of control, they're not. When you're faced on the ropes and you're wrestling with God, things just don't make sense to you. You can't believe that God would be involved in the way things are turning out in your life or in the world around you. And you keep asking God, why this disaster? Why this tragedy? Why this difficulty? Why is it happening like this? Remember, sometimes things happen like that so God can miraculously deliver you. Sometimes things happen that way so God can correct you. Sometimes they happen simply to push us on our knees and get us to repent. Sometimes those things happen, folks, to teach us patience. Sometimes it's to get us to take our focus off the world around us and put our focus on Jesus Christ and on eternity. And sometimes it's all the above and a whole lot more. But there's always, always a reason. Now, if you're still not convinced that God can take the greatest evil there ever is and take that evil and make it into the greatest good, or you're not convinced that God can take the greatest injustice and make it the greatest justice, bring about the greatest justice there is, then I want to remind you of something, once again, that I reminded you of many times this past year. 
It's something that if only Habakkuk could have seen it, he probably, this book, if he could have seen what I'm, te- what I'm about to tell you, then the book of Habakkuk would probably been reduced to one single verse. What I'm talking about is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you just for a moment, imagine those disciples the day that Jesus was crucified. Some of them are in hiding. Some of them are looking from afar. Some are standing close to the cross. Imagine those disciples. At that point in time, they're confused. They're at a crisis of belief. They are shaking their fists in the face of God. They're saying, God, what are you doing? How could you allow this or let this happen? God, we thought that he was your beloved son in whom you were well pleased. We thought that he was the Messiah, the one sent to this world to set the world right, to solve our problems, and to save us from our enemies. God, why? Why? We know what the disciples, again, their faith was on the ropes. And it was on the ropes at the cross, and it wasn't until Sunday morning at an empty tomb that the lights come on. And at that moment, they remembered who God really is. And they realized that he was listening. He was working. He was accomplishing his purpose all along. Christian, I want you to remember this. When you don't think God's listening, he is. When you don't think God's got a plan, he does. When you think everything's out of control, it's not. Remember, when you don't understand what God's doing, remember who God is. He is perfectly holy. He is eternally wise. He is powerfully sovereign. That means no matter what, he has a plan that is ultimately good, right, and cannot fail. It will be for your good and for his glory. We just can't see it now. When you come to that crossroads, remember these things. You say, I've never been there yet. You will be one day, Christian. You bow your heads, please. Maybe there's some of you here and you're saying, well, I've never really wrestled with God. I've never been to that, that crossroads, that crisis of belief. Well, there's two reasons for that. One, you had not been a Christian long enough. Or two, you're not a Christian to begin with. You don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because I assure you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will eventually arrive at a crisis of belief. You say, how do I know? How do I know if I'm truly following Christ or not? Have you ever made that decision where you surrendered your life to him? Where you said, I don't care, come what may, I'm following Jesus. He died for me. He paid the price for me. He's calling me. When it's time to respond to that. I'm not talking to you about joining the church or, or doing good deeds or tithing your money or being baptized. Or anything. I'm talking about surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. And then maybe some of you here today, you're a Christian, you, you are in the middle of one of these struggles right now. With all that's going on around us in the world or maybe what's going on in your life today, you're at this crisis of belief point. You're against the ropes. 
Friend, why don't you just bow where you're at or you can come forward this morning. You can bow here in front of the church, bow before God and say, God, I don't understand what's happening, but I'm going to trust you because of who you are. I don't understand why you're doing this, but I know who you are. Father, I pray for those that need to make a decision this morning, that need to surrender their life to you and establish that relationship with Jesus Christ and be one of your children. I pray they'd have the courage to make that decision. And then, Father, I pray for Christians that are here who are struggling. Father, they'd realize that, that doubting's not a sin. They'd realize that those questions, those doubts they have in their heart, you already know about. I pray they would just honestly confront you and, and Father, they would lay their heart bare before you and acknowledge the fact that you alone are God. Father, I praise you that no matter what happens to us as your children, you have assured us and promised us the outcome, the end of all things will be for our good and for your glory. We praise you for your sovereignty, for your grace. In Christ's name, amen. You stand, please.